0: Welcome to NASA and Silicon Valley, episode 61. Uh, for the last few episodes, we've been asking for input on our fancy new phone line. So we have our first caller, Raj, who dialed 650-604-1400, just like you can. And he left this message. Oh Hi, uh, my name is Raj Paranji. I'm calling from Seattle. Uh, I'm uh, just following with interest the podcast on the Cassini grand finale. I have one question. Um, I, with the current state of the technology, if there is a future mission like Cassini to the outer planets, are we in a position to design in such a way that the energy source never runs out, for example, for the solar energy? Will that be possible that you can design a, an orbiter, which will just keep going forever? And uh, given the longevity of the Voyager probes, so is there something like that is on the cards? so that you don't have to really lose such a wonderful instrument which is still functioning otherwise. Joining us for this special intro is Chad Frost, uh, the Deputy Director for Engineering here at NASA Ames. So, Chad, uh, tell us what do you think? Would it make more sense to use solar power for stuff like Cassini?
1: Hey, Matt. Well, Raj asked a really great question. And it's not just about can you use solar power. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, his question was, how do you keep a mission going indefinitely? Yeah. Um, and OK. could power from the sun be the solution to doing that? And that's a great question, and those are the kinds of questions we have to think about all the time for NASA missions. And really, when when we're planning a mission out into deep space, one of the real considerations is actually the ongoing cost to operate that spacecraft over the lifetime of the mission. So a spacecraft that can function and collect science data for a really long time can be just incredibly valuable. And Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, those are great examples. They've been out there for 40 years this month uh, in regular communication with NASA. But that does cost something for the people and the facilities to make all that happen. Uh, there's also a cost associated with building a spacecraft that can last in the heat, the cold, the radiation of the space environment, uh, and it takes quite a bit more to engineer and build a system that's so reliable. Um, so typically we'll design a spacecraft to perform a particular mission, uh, get the science we want, and then wrap up. Yeah. And Cassini is one example of that, uh, and LADEE mission is another, and there's lots. When the mission's over, it's over, and that means the, you know, the, the meter doesn't keep ticking. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes an open-end mission is the right thing to do, um, and the Voyager missions are great examples, but th- there is a cost associated with doing that. So one of the challenges for missions to the outer planets is that the power available from the sun decreases with the square of the distance. Okay. So the further out we go, uh, the less power we have to work with. Yeah, it gets right? just, it's
0: weaker and weaker. It gets
1: weaker and weaker. And NASA's Juno spacecraft, for example, would yeah. generate 14 kilowatts of power um, in, of electricity if it were in Earth orbit, right? But by the time it gets out to Jupiter, it can only produce 400 watts, right? Uh-huh. About the same as a blender. Okay. Okay. Not very much. And a very expensive blender. Very expensive blender. So, additionally, right not only is the energy available from the sun going down really fast as you get further out, the solar cell efficiency degrades over time that it's uh, exposed to the space environment. And it takes several years to get out that far. So the amount of electricity that you can generate from your solar cells is going down too. So what this means is, you know, as you go out past about the orbit of Jupiter, you either need truly huge solar arrays, which with today's technology, we just we can't get them up into space, but we're working on it. Yeah. Uh, or we need some other source of power. Uh, fortunately, we have what's called an RTG, a radioisotope thermal generator, uh, which produce electricity from the heat generated by radioactive materials. Oh and wow, these work great. We've been using them since the 1960s and ever since. Uh, but they're really heavy and they're really expensive um, and even those eventually stop making enough power to be useful. That takes decades, but still, eventually you run yeah, out Yeah, there of is power. an end point. Yeah. So, the other limiting factor on the lifetime of a spacecraft is its supply of propellant. Um, spacecraft need propellant to perform maneuvers um, and once all that propellant is expended, the spacecraft can't point, can't change its uh, trajectory and even electric propulsion systems, which are very efficient and we use a lot now because of their efficiency, they require some form of propellant. Um, when it's all used up, the mission's effectively over uh, because the spacecraft can't point uh, back to Earth to do its communications, for example. Um, even if the rest of the spacecraft systems yeah. are all working just fine, once the propellant's gone, that's kind of it. So. You know, th- these are all great challenges. They're things we have to work through for any deep space mission. And I think the, the key, to, key answer to Raj's question is, you know, if we could have them last forever, we yeah. would. <laughs> it costs something to do that. Yeah. And it's a real hard technology problem. Yeah. So if the science warrants it, NASA will go for it. Um, a lot of times you just want to go out, get the get what you key mean. science and be done with it.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on over, Chad. I'm sure this isn't going to be the last that we hear from Chad Frost. My pleasure, uh, Matt. Anytime. But also a reminder to folks listening to keep calling in, and who knows, maybe we'll end up doing a full episode just for calls and, and input and feedback and answers and stuff. But for this episode, uh, we are joined by Leighton Kwan. He is a project manager in the Airspace Technology Division at NASA Ames. We talk a lot about his research and work on the nation's air traffic management systems, and I think we can all relate to sitting on long flights and annoying layovers. But Leighton's work is targeted at making air traffic systems safer, faster, and more efficient. So, let's jump right into our conversation with Leighton Kwan. How did you join NASA? How did you end up in Silicon Valley? Well, I'll go
2: in the reverse order. I was <laughs> nice. uh, born and raised in the area, so I'm a local. Uh, born and raised, spent all but a couple years of my life in the area. Okay. Uh, including school. So uh, I am a local, and that's why I'm here. Um, <laughs> I came to NASA. I, I had been working as, so my degrees are in engineering. I had been working uh, in the Silicon Valley area for a number of years in industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, half of my career is still in the, on the industry side before I eventually came to civil service. But I was working in areas that are that that NASA here at Ames Research Center had a need for. Uh, mm-hmm. At that point in my career, it was largely modeling and simulation, simulations of aircraft uh, and those types of things. Air uh, also air transportation types of simulations. So I had been working in that area in industry, and eventually there was an opportunity. To kind of bring it over. Um, yeah, to, to come over to civil service and continue doing similar work, but at a higher level. And so kind of as a career move, it, it just made sense at that time.
0: Oh, cool. So, um, yeah, I'd imagine, especially growing up in this area, you know, driving 101, you see these big hangars and kind of wonder, like, what's going on back over there behind that fence? Yep, yep. And, in fact,
2: I remember driving up and down 101 when, you know, the— the cities of San Jose and San Francisco and the suburbs did not touch each other. There would be open space
0: oh, wow. before
2: you would get to the next suburb. and A and lot of they, orchards. and Yeah, <laughs> and just open open space. Um, 101 north and southbound was only three lanes at that time. Oh, wow. And, yeah, as you went by this, this area, you could see the big hangar was very prominent.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so... I mean, imagine, you know, having worked in industry for a while, you, you know that NASA is a thing. You know the work that they're doing in aeronautics. and, and um, So did you just see a job, or did somebody come approach you, and say, hey, we think this would be a good fit? How did that work out?
2: Well, I mean, the first step was, I mean, I was in industry not even related to NASA mm-hmm. work, Ames Research. It's, it was some defense and other government work. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, I did work, begin doing work that was, Supported and done by NASA, but I was not yet working for NASA as a civil servant. And then, as time went on, there were there were there were opportunities of, you know that were well aligned with what I was doing and kind of where I wanted to go with my career. Uh, so there was an opportunity that I I uh, took advantage of. And that was when I transitioned to civil service.
0: And so, when you came on board, what were you working on? Uh,
2: it was, I came on board to become the deputy. Project manager for the Virtual Airspace Modeling and Simulation Project.
0: Okay. VAMS. Quite a mouthful. So, yeah. what exactly does that
2: do? Well, we, we were focusing, that project focused on, um, it was actually a fairly descriptive title. Yeah. Uh, air, airspace, as in the air traffic management and air traffic that we have in this country, modeling okay. and simulation. So, developing modeling of that, developing simulation and simulation tools. To better understand and analyze mm-hmm. the system, the air transportation system, and to propose, uh, propose and look into uh, future concepts of operation to make the air transportation more efficient um, and and utilize more technology than than it currently had.
0: Well, it's it's one of those funny things when people typically think of NASA, they think of astronauts and launching rockets, like leaving out that you know that's a core part of the acronym NASA, Aeronautics, being a huge part of that. But also when you think of air traffic controllers, I think people first place their mind goes is to the FAA. And a lot of the work that NASA is doing is a lot of some of that research that helps Helps that you know those air traffic control systems and that's working correct. in sync with the FAA. So yeah. talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, and that's correct. I mean, at the stage in the relationship we're at with the FAA. So first of all, yes, NASA, the first A in NASA's <laughs> Aeronautics, National Aeronautics and Space Administration. So we're very happy and proud about that. Absolutely. Um, so I'm glad you uh, you had a, had a chance to allude to that. <laughs> Right now, our current relationship with the FAA is, is actually quite strong. It's probably stronger than it's ever been, and it's related to the um, air traffic management and the research there. In, a, in, a, in broad statements, um, you know, the FAA is responsible for the implementation and safe operation of the air traffic management and air tra- transportation system. Um, we're helping out, uh, being a government research agency, mm-hmm. by doing some of the early research and development for future air traffic management systems um, of all sorts. Some of them are things for the FAA and the air traffic controller systems and the things they rely on. Some of them may be onboard flight decks and aircraft Mm -hmm. for um, operational efficiency things. Uh, There's additional research related to uh, just aviation safety uh, in general and technologies that can be applied there both on the ground as well as, as in the air, onboard air, individual aircraft. So it, it's, it's quite a broad portfolio of yeah. work. Um, and it, in addition to that, a lot of the traditional work that we've always done is, is still there um, with respect to aeron- aerodynamics, mm-hmm. aerodynamics of design, of, of wings, of aircraft bodies, aircraft shapes, efficiency issues with uh, moving something through the air, as well as future air, uh, airplane designs. Those are all still part of NASA's aeronautics portfolio.
0: Well, and also one thing that comes to mind of having had these conversations with different people in different parts of NASA Ames, um, the folks working in, like, supercomputing and stuff. Um, I'd imagine that, you know, not every government agency has a, a supercomputer on hand. <laughs> so That's you true. guys, do you guys work with that on some of this research? And you talked about modeling and simulations. Does that play into it a little bit?
2: Only a little bit, but we do. Okay. We, we do, in fact, have. Sometimes we have computations that are very, very demanding. Yeah, um, that kind of go beyond the uh, the uh, the ability or scope of kind of standard computing class hardware. Uh, so we have, uh, we do, and we have used the the supercomputing facilities here for various analyses. And that kind of comes and goes depending on what we're studying. Yeah, and, and on what, on what the topic. need is. Um, as far as kind of the operational studies through the ages, through the years. In fact, that first project that got me to come to civil service was was about building modeling and simulation capabilities that could support the research we envisioned in the future. Now, that, okay. was, that was in 2003. Uh-huh. And <laughs> so, so we are in the future now. <laughs> we are, and I will say I'm happy and pleased to say we're actually leveraging in my current project a lot of the groundwork that we did back in the early 2000s related to modeling and simulation. So it's proving valuable to us uh, what we did before yeah. in our current research, and I know we continue, we, the, you know, the, kind of the aeronautics research here, we continue to look at better and future ways to do uh, simulations, and that's, that's, a diff- that's another project,
0: actually. So build on that, so what were you working on before, and then how did that help pave the way for the stuff that you're doing now? Uh, Is it just focused mainly on just, like, how to do research, how to do simulations, or?
2: Oh, well, yeah. so if you're referring to the earlier project I, yeah, I, I yeah. mentioned, yeah, I mean, it was a com- It was actually a lot of the precursor work to what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, in that project, we had three areas of focus. One was actually modeling and simulation. Mm-hmm. What types of tools do we need to support the research we anticipate for the future?
0: Okay. Kind of future-proofing it a little bit. Right. Yeah.
2: One was uh, system-level integrated concepts, so that was more about the air transportation system in, it, in itself and how certain concepts, new concepts, could be looked at, entertained, developed, mm-hmm. and then presumably tested in our in, simulation in from, facilities. Yeah. Yeah. And then ways to evaluate those new concepts, so we had a, an evaluation uh, focus in there. So it was the, the modeling and simulation tools and support, the con- new concepts... To try within that facility or the, those facilities, and then the way uh, ways to evaluate kind of the goodness of of those yeah. those
0: future concepts. And then on the stuff that you guys research, the stuff that you, you guys are studying, how do those questions come about? Does it, is it stuff that you know the, uh, researchers at NASA come up with, or is this FAA saying, "Hey, here's a problem that we're having," or is it private industry? Like how? What, what formula, what, what drives the questions that you end up looking it, at and researching? It's actually all of those. All of the above. Um, all right.
2: right. The things that we look at, if you look at the entirety of the portfolio, even beyond what I have within Aeronautics, um, you you could find examples of all of those things. Really? In my portfolio, which is now the uh, Airspace Technology Demonstrations Project, mm-hmm. or ATD Project, a lot of what we work on is maturing the re foundational research that some of our researchers worked on five and ten years ago, and now it's kind of coming to fruition and ready to be evaluated and and tried in the field. So, in my portfolio, a lot of times we do work with the FAA. The FAA comes to us with, you know, hey, we're we're struggling in this area, or we understood you had some foundational research in this mm-hmm. area. We'd like. We'd like to pull that along. We'd like you to help us pull that along. And um, so, in my portfolio, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of industry, since you know, air transportation is you know, as a traveler, we're we're all on somebody's airline or air, <laughs> yes. an airplane. And if we're are,
0: And if we're not, some goods that we either are wearing or touching or buying or eating, or eating, have been in a plane at some point in yeah. time. So
2: um, you know they're very strong stakeholders in the overall yeah. system, and a lot of the work we do could be generated by their uh, their needs and discussions with them on on what what they think some of the priorities are missing, missing missing things are some of the gaps, some of the operational problems they deal with, and then our researchers you know are are quite brilliant in just studying the system uh, and finding issues and problems with it uh, based on their own research and studies. And so a lot of times those will generate yeah. kind of what I've referred to as foundational research. One, find the problem, and yeah. then two, propose a solution and start doing the research on that. As that matures, it can gain in uh, visibility by
0: those other entities, the okay. FAA
2: or industry, and say, yeah, yeah, you're right,
0: we need that. Yeah. And some of that research can like then evolve into Demonstrations, practice, and then eventually, sometime down the line, actual implementation. On like, okay, here's the research, here's our tests. This is how it should be actually used.
2: Right, and and actually, so my current project that I manage, um, ATD project, Air Transport Airspace Technology Demonstrations project, we're focused kind of on that tail end. Where the the technology the research is is becoming mature, okay, and it's ready to be um, kind of developed and tested, maybe demonstrated, and, you know that's why the names are all in there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, either in very mature systems that we had and that NASA has here or we have access to, as well as uh, field systems, maybe going out into the field at an airport mm-hmm. or at an airline and trying our demonstrating and trying our systems there or even working with the FAA in their labs which you know most of their labs uh, actually have the fielded systems that the FAA uses but we have the opportunity to get in there with uh, with them and work jointly to um, you know prove the feasibility okay. of not only the the concept but that it can be embedded into their baseline systems
0: and so talk a little bit about the about ATD, ATD I know there's ATD one, ATD two, I believe there was some testing going on at Charlotte, and we're working on oh. at ATD three. So for folks who have no clue what is ATD, and go through like the, the progress of, yeah, and where we're at. Serious. Okay, ATD one focused on um,
2: what we call arrival. Uh, arrival technology. So, as, as you're traveling to somewhere by air, air mm-hmm. you're in the airplane, the last hundred to fifty miles in getting to the airport uh, generally sees a lot of congestion, especially the busy airports. Yeah,
0: yeah especially and, in the holidays and stuff. Yeah.
2: Exactly. So, um, ATD 1 focused on uh, three main technologies to address kind of the rush hour and trying to arrive at an, a busy airport area. It was um, There's something we called terminal sequencing and spacing which is a a master schedule that that now gets broadcast to everybody, the controllers and things like that. So everybody kind of knows where everybody should be when. Okay. In addition to that, there were controller side tools that helped show the controllers not only the schedule that I just mentioned but on their radar screens kind of little markers where each aircraft should be to adhere to that schedule. Mm-hmm. And then on the flight deck, we had flight deck interval management tools. These were tools for the flight crews that gave them speed cues in order to accurately position themselves behind another aircraft, a lead aircraft. Okay. And that's utilizing ADSB technology, which is a, a, big, uh, a big buzzword now, yeah. automatic dependent surveillance broadcast. It's the, the higher precision satellite-based positioning equipment okay. that, that everybody's beginning to move to. So by having those three things—the schedule, you know where everybody should be, yes. the tools for the controllers and the tools for the flight crews to, so to get their on the same page—the uh, efficiency in moving into these very busy uh, airports uh, is is helped uh, measurably.
0: And, and, and you guys actually tested that? That was a couple of year, a couple of months ago or a year ago?
2: Well, the two-phase, the, two uh, the ground-side tools that I mentioned for the controllers, they went to the FAA uh, a couple years ago. Uh, we transferred those technologies to the FAA, and those are in their implementation pipeline already, in fact. Okay. For, the, uh, for the ground tools, initial operating capability at the first site is scheduled for... Uh, Second quarter of fiscal year nineteen. Oh wow! Okay, so it's it's uh, it's coming up. Um, so we we're very happy about that. What we were what we were doing just a couple months ago, or January, late January, early February, we were actually flying the first prototype of the flight deck interval management hardware and software. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were up in the, the Pacific Northwest, the like Seattle area. In Seattle, yeah, yeah. And that what was exciting about that is uh, new procedures with new hardware prototype hardware with prototype software flying those new procedures on three aircraft. So we had uh, the ADS-B, the aircraft have to broadcast their position, so that's ADS-B. So we had a lead aircraft which was a a Falcon 900 jet. Uh, We were engaged in a collaborative and and contracted effort with uh, Boeing that included Honeywell and United Airlines. Mm -hmm. So Honeywell provided a Falcon 900 jet to be the lead, and then a 757, Boeing 757 flight test aircraft with the new equipment on it, spacing behind the Falcon, and then United Airlines. Following the leader. <laughs> provided, yeah, provided a, um, a, an aircraft they pulled right out of service. We installed prototype hardware in the cockpit, and we were able to f- have them fly and follow uh, most of the times the seven five seven, but
0: it just needed a, uh, an ADS-B aircraft to follow. And not only like you know the private sector folks and you know FAA, but even within NASA, I remember I think NASA Langley also had a lot of work and, and, and stuff that they were working
2: on. Yeah, well, in fact, ATD one was a, a great joint effort between uh, NASA uh, Ames and Langley Research Centers. Um, AMES focused on the schedule, the ground, the schedule, and the controller tools, mm-hmm. and Langley focused on the flight deck interval management or the, oh, the cool. flight deck tools. So that's, which is what we were flying um, in January and February of this year. So um, yeah, that was a very big effort. Um, I know that we had the associate administrator for aeronautics out there. And um, I had forgotten, but he reminded me he used to do flight tests. Oh, really? And <laughs> nice. uh, as a flight test engineer many, many years ago, <laughs> and he just had this brief, you know, story of, you know, I used to think it was hard for me to fly an icing anti-icing experiment on one aircraft. I can't believe how well you guys are doing flying three aircraft, coordinating three aircraft in a flight test of this magnitude with prototype hardware and software. So he was very pleased to, to see that progress. Well, and,
0: and that makes sense. If you think of, you know, air traffic controlling, especially if it's bad weather or, you know, during the holiday season, crazy congestion, if you can start, like, finding some efficiencies on, you know, that spacing between airplanes, if they're pacing behind each other at the right length and almost in some ways automating some of that stuff, um, you know, just having a better control of understanding where and everything goes—that means less time sitting in yes. an airport delays. It's less time. You know, it's like safer, more fuel efficient. There's all kinds of benefits you can get by just kind of modifying these procedures. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. And again, it really works. It's 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 at its best at the busiest times, which was yes. always the hardest hardest problem for everybody. <laughs> right? Including the passenger sitting in back, you know. Yes. Best analogy I heard is you're sitting in the middle seat. You've come cross country. Yes. It's been five hours. You're about to land, and all of a sudden you feel the aircraft make a right turn because it got too busy, and now you're in a holding pattern. Yeah. It's like, so now you're stuck in that middle seat for a little bit longer. And with these systems,
0: that should be, if not eliminated, minimized. Yeah, I think anybody who's been on a flight has had that experience. You're right towards the end, you're getting to descend, and then you just circle the airport because yeah. you're just waiting for your turn. And you're kind of like, really? <laughs> Why are we doing this? Yeah. But this is the thing that like, some of the research that NASA's working on is to minimize that. And I know when you talk to anybody in aeronautics at NASA, they always love to say, NASA's with you when you fly. Yes. And it is a true thing. It's like it's with you in you flying and hopefully making that flight shorter and uh, safer, you know, as you, uh, you know, as you go about your day. Yeah. And that's so that's ATD-1's emphasis.
2: ATD-2 adds to that by taking not only the arrival work we've completed with one into account, but adding the airport surface operations and the departure side when you're trying to, you know, uh, depart the airport. Uh, you probably again, you've probably been in an airplane where you're just waiting for what seems like minutes, uh, tens of minutes uh, or more for the runway, just to get on the runway go. You're taxiing and you're waiting for your turn. And if you're sitting in the terminal, you can see all the planes lining up for the runway. Uh, That's that's not very efficient either. And so similar premise, you know, one of NASA aeronautics hallmarks is scheduling. Okay. So applying scheduling principles for both the airport surface operations, as well as when to take off in order to merge with the, uh, uh, the aircraft already flying. So kind of think of it as on-ramping into the, the highway in the sky, figuring out those schedules and providing the tools to all of the operators, whether that's FAA in the tower or FAA air traffic controllers, or even the airline airlines as they try and coordinate their uh, gate and ramp operations. Everybody gets that picture and gets a say on when they, you know, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. It's like, mm-hmm. can we go now? Wait one more minute and you'll be <laughs> able to leave without waiting. Nice. Right? So um, that's ATD2. It kind of wraps in the arrival side from one as well as the airport surface and departure operations. And also kind of the magic of that is when you're getting into a metropolitan area, much like this San Francisco Bay Area, Yeah, there's three major airports that serve absolutely they're all launching aircraft in the same airspace so that that's added coordination that's being built uh now also by the nasa schedulers
0: and so looking into the future i know you guys are already planning on atd3 so the trilogy <laughs> and i'm sure that there's even more to come after that so what is the future what, what are you seeing yeah you know,
2: well um we've actually already initiated three three is uh more in uh In route airspace, so at cruise altitudes, when weather is moving across the country and airplanes are trying to find ways to get around that. Um, We're focusing kind of on the weather rerouting tools right now, but it's really about traffic flow management. So three is up and running also. What's in the future? You know, the one, two, and three, you know, when we get one, the technologies from one, two, and three out there, uh, they're all going to be contributing to various types of efficiencies. But then... We wanna go beyond that, look at more of a larger systemic view, so not only have those will those make it out there but systemically as you try and go from your origin airport to your mm-hmm. destination airport, yeah. what other attributes of that system need to be modernized uh, or changed to be more efficient?
0: Alright, so for folks looking for more information, I know we go to nasa.gov slash aeronautics and we are on Twitter, at NASA Ames, we are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley, so if anybody has questions for Leighton, or complaints about how- or if anybody has suggestions for Leighton on how to make air traffic management more efficient, we'll just send them your way and you can fix all their problems, right?
2: We're always, we're always interested in hearing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it could be the foundation for future research. Huh? You never know out. where those new ideas come from. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on over.
2: All right. Thank you.